like to turn to Luke. We're going to read from there, Luke. Chapter 9. So you, 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 you're geared up, you're ready to go this morning, right? You're, you're, you're full of passion, excitement, waiting to hear God, your heart's open. Is there a little bit of a buzz around here, or are we all sleeping? It sounds It is? It is? Come, Lord. Please, Lord. Well, leave here, change. Never be the same again. Not another boring sermon. It's just going to be something else you file away and say, oh, God, please. Help John. I mean, it's like, help me, God. Speak through that idiot anyway. Right? That's great. Stir us up. I don't know about you, but I want to get stirred up. Luke chapter 9, verse 18. Once when Jesus was praying in private, his disciples were with him. He asked them, Who do the crowd say that I am? They replied, Well, some say, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. What about you, he asked? Who do you say I am? Peter answered, the Christ of God. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone, and he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. And he must be killed. And on the third day he raised to life. And he said to them, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. For what good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. And I tell you the truth, that some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Lord, we are those who stand and the kingdom of God has been revealed and is present for us. We are those who live in the inheritance of the King of Kings. We are those who live in a place where there is more life offered to human beings on earth than has ever been offered in the history of the world. And we pray that you would stir our hearts this morning to, to enter into a deeper place with you, to enter into a more fulfilling place, and to understand more deeply the meaning of your cross over this world and in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're going to be talking this morning and thinking about the cross. And I find in the last year or so, my understanding of the cross, my whole perception of the cross, is going through a radical shift. Um, I want to spend a few minutes anyway talking about what Jesus did on the cross. 
We're looking at a phrase in Colossians, so you might want to, if you have Bibles, which we, we do use here, um, Colossians chapter 1. Don't worry about the overhead. Colossians chapter 1, verse 12. Paul is writing to the Colossians, and he says to them, I give thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. This is Colossians 1. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. What we're talking about is that verse that he says, The Father has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. He's rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves now. Many of us um, struggle to get excited about this stuff. And we say we hate religion and yet we are addicted to religion. Religion is when I do stuff for God to keep Him happy. But I never really am happy because I get on with the real world where I'm sort of happy. And Paul sort of totally disagrees with that. He actually says, in this world is a kingdom of darkness, and Jesus came to rescue from that kingdom of darkness. And if you try and live in a twilight zone, you don't have quite enough light to see clearly, you don't have quite enough darkness to hide, and it's an awful place to be. And probably 90% of the church is in the twilight zone. Jesus called it probably lukewarm. But I believe his mandate to us is to say, I want to draw my people into a place of passion and excitement. A place of victory, a place where they do make an impact and they are confident in the power of the living God. They know my power and presence in such a way that they touch people's lives and I touch people's lives through them because I know who they are. We live in a time where our authority in our life is incredibly determined by our feelings and our emotions and our circumstances. And so we are shaken all over the place. And what Jesus did on the cross was an absolute anchor, an absolute rock, an absolute statement in time that said, you want to hear me now? All right, let's go. Thank you. So Jesus comes into the world and he is a revelation of God the Father, God's love, his power, his presence, his incredible um, friendliness, actually. And uh, he, he, he surprises everyone as he spends his time healing the sick and, and being nice to people and challenging the religious leaders. He surprises everybody. He surprises the poor because he cares. He notices them. He surprises the rich because he challenges them and has the audacity not to be bribed by their money. He surprises the religious leaders because he doesn't respect them too much because they hijack everything they should have done. He surprises everyone. He surprises the prostitute because he doesn't use her, he loves her and sets her free. He surprises the blind and deaf because he says, I guess you would like to kill and live a life that is curing in this world. Surprisingly loving and powerful. Not just words, actions all the time. And of course, the most eloquent action of the love of God is when he went to the cross. I was thinking about that and thinking about 
You know, if I was Jesus and talking to Father and saying, you know, Father or Dad, I've got a papa, whatever you like. Um, I think I'd like to go down and become a son of man in Canada. Um, maybe in the year 2008, because, um, well, it's quite comfortable there. And I could live and wear blue jeans, and, and then I could eventually down an electric chair. It might just be a lot neater. I'm not sure I would ever go for the Roman Empire. That's the place I was going to parachute into. One of those barbaric and brutal uh, periods of history. Yes, they made roads, and yes, they did this, and yes, they did that, but they were also vicious. If you want to see a kingdom that is opposite to the kingdom of God, you look at the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire is the logical conclusion of human beings who say there is no God, Caesar is God. This is what somebody wrote, I thought I'd just read it to you about crucifixion. Crucifixion was considered by the ancient world, especially the Romans, to be one of the greatest sources of physical suffering a human being could endure. It was reserved for provincials, non-citizens, and the most heinous of traitors. It is to be noted that it was considered such an indignity to the Roman citizen, however hated, that, that no Roman citizen, however hated, was to be crucified. When the Emperor Vitellius was deposed in 69 AD after a reign of only a few months, he was slapped and beaten by the crowd, publicly humiliated, ridiculed, and a book was cast to his neck, his body thrown off the top of rock into the Tiber. That's not pretty but he was not crucified. That punishment was considered too extreme. When Nero was deposed by the Senate, an announced sentence prevented by his timely suicide was to be beaten with rods and thrown into the river. Not even the hate of Nero would have been considered uh, would have been uh, nailed to the cross. Paul of Tarsus, as a Roman citizen, was beheaded, which was considered a kinder, gentler, even merciful mode of execution. The idea was that the heading at least permitted the person to retain little dignity and honor, so important in the Roman world. The only methods of execution permitted by Jewish law were strangulation, stoning, beheading, and burning. Crucifixion was adopted by the Romans from the Phoenicians, and when done publicly was the most effective deterrent as well as punishment. The criminal first was flogged with a Roman flagrum, a short leather work consisting of a handle at the end of which were two or three leather scourges. It had either jagged pieces of bone or metal or dumbbell-shaped pellets of lead sewn or bound onto the ends of the leather scourge. The pellets would have had the effect of pelting the victim repeatedly with the ancient equivalent of lead musket balls, pulverizing but not puncturing the skin. The skin would break down fairly quickly, becoming quite degraded. The person would bleed, but the main punishment would come from blood trauma. On the other hand, if the jagged pieces were set into uh, if the jagged pieces were set into scores, they would, uh, uh, they would, by impact, flick out tiny chunks of flesh and they would be profuse bleeding. The destruction of the integrity of the flesh and the loss of blood by both times of flagrant was such that forty lashes was considered to be tantamount to a death sentence. So when a Roman magistrate wished to cause the victim suffering, but not the full horror of crucifixion, the criminal might be sentenced to 39 lashes before crucifixion. This would usually result in death, thus sparing the laboring pain and suffering of the cross. Now the reality is that Jesus died on the cross, and there are lots of people in this world that have suffered more than Jesus did. 
There are lots of people who have gone through more tortures and more pain than Jesus did in his crucifixion, physically. So if that was what, was the, what the cross was about, there are lots of martyrs, there are lots of people. You can read the early Christians who were entertained in the Colosseum. Um, they were fried in frying pans, they were thrown to lions, they were pulled in and out of danger, and they were kept alive overnight. I mean, they went through a lot more horrific stuff than Jesus did. And so I think that it's actually rather tedious and rather silly how we as a church spend most of our time um, gazing at the cross and the physical death of Jesus and entering into his pain and suffering and think that's what it was about. I'm not diminishing in any way at all what he went through. And what is remarkable is that this was the exact opposite of the Roman leadership. There's the Son of God saying, I will lay down my life. I'm not going to argue my case before you. And that the, the worst that the demonic realm can do is kill. And so Jesus challenged the light of the world, challenged darkness, and darkness sought it one when he was locked up in a tomb. And Jesus was not unfamiliar with crucifixion. Crucifixion wasn't something that started with Jesus. It was going on around the empire. There's a statement that says that when Jesus was 11 years old in Nazareth, there was an uprising by a guy called Judas the Galilean who led a rebellion against the Romans. And he, he raided the royal army at Sepphoris, which was four miles outside of Nazareth. So when he was caught, the Romans, in their gentle way, killed the whole population of Sephoris. And they took 2,000 of the rebels and crucified them on the streets outside Nazareth. As a warning, don't mess with us. There is nothing romantic about the Romans. Hollywood has this great way of revising history or making the value look beautiful. I wonder what it's like for God to listen to us, listen to me sometimes, talking to him about suffering. He looks over the whole world and he goes, Oh my. He listens to us praying and say, I'll believe in, if you, in you if you and we fill in the blank. And he must go, Oh my. You are so rich. You are so privileged. You are so after. You live like God's. The Son of God was more than that, and He laid down His life for you and for me. He stretched His hands out and He bled for the sin of the world. And today, I kind of drag myself into His presence and say, Well, thanks, Jesus. And through the worship, I kind of chew down and go into the zone. Pray for God to touch our hearts deep. Pray for God to move us. Pray for God to, deep, to make it matter deeply in us. To break through the affluence and comfort of our lives to a place where we are stirred in the deepest part of our being and go, God, I praise you and I bless you. Without you, I would be dead. 
That's what I'm praying for. More passion, not less. More rights, not less. I want to see the power of the living God at work in me, through me, and I don't care what it takes anymore. I'm not being poetic. And so sick of religion. And so are you. The only problem is that if we want to see something vibrantly alive here, we stand in the mirror and say, Jesus, start with me. Set me on fire. So we're going to talk quickly about the cross, what was accomplished. What was Jesus doing on the cross? John 3.16, God so loved the world that he sent his son, that would believe in him, and not perish but have eternal life. The cross was the place, we all, most of us know this, if not all of us know this, the cross is the place where God came into this world to deal with the human heart and the predicament of human beings, which was Quickly, God said, if you rebel against me, if you disobey me, if you do not keep my will perfectly, we will be separated by death. Punishment of sin is death. Why is it that way? It's because, not because God likes death, it's that way because when we rebel, when we say no to God, we end up in a polluted place. And his perfection cannot enter in. His perfection and our imperfection cannot meet. If we came into God's presence imperfect, we would be fried, we would be annihilated. We can't survive in his presence without sin being dealt with. So it's like the human race from Adam and Eve became infected with AIDS. And no matter how much you try and make Statements, you can manage the disease possibly, but you can't eradicate it. So everyone is born with that disease. And so Jesus comes and says, I go to the cross to take that disease upon myself and release a blood transfusion that will actually eliminate AIDS to everyone who comes. Doesn't mean to say that there's perfection, I will eliminate the death sentence of that disease. And so Jesus' greatest accomplishment on the cross is meeting the justice of a loving God who says the punishment for this rebellion against me is death, even though you might be innocent. That's really important. You see, you can stand before God and say, I didn't do this, I didn't do this, I didn't do this. He says, I know you did, but your parents did, or somebody else did, but you are still infected. And you've done other things because of your infection. You are part of a bigger scale. It's not all about you, but you are part of a bigger scale. And so I came into this world to, to do something about it because I love you. If I didn't love you, I wouldn't do anything about it. I'd say it's tough, it doesn't work, bad experiment. But I came into this world in order to give an antidote to the very thing that caused the problem. And by the way, let me remind you how much you talked to me about how you want to be free, and how you want to assert your own will, and how you want and want and want. And I give it to you, you can't handle it, and now you're a gum tree and nowhere to get down on that We have this passion for freedom, but we have this inability to deal with it. So the only way we deal with it is either legislate ourselves to death, which is what happens here, right? 
There's a law for everything. I mean, talk about freedom. You're not allowed to do it, but I'm not in this world. Except in American basketball, where there's a little bit of freedom, it's a punishment to let us go and go So we have this tension here, and what Jesus did on the cross was to say, I take away that problem. To all who come before me, I take away the effect of sin as a barrier between the loving God and themselves. And you can test that real easily. People who have not met Jesus at the cross don't know God is fine. Period. You can also test it very easily. Tell me about God. You bear witness to what you know. And the first thing the cross was, therefore, was a place where the incurable disease of sin rebelled. Everything that disqualifies me was taken care of by Jesus on the cross. And so he said, All who want to come to God the Father comes through me. I'm the way, the truth, and the life comes through me. Colossians 2. For in Christ, verse 9, for in Christ, for the fullness of the days he lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head of every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised in the putting of the sinful nature, not with the circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, raised with him through your faith in the power of God, who raised him from the dead. God has done something that we can be part of. The reason why that is important is because we spend a lot of our time really um, fixating upon our own inadequacies and our own inability to do things. And what God is trying to get us to understand is He says, I understand your capability, that's why I'm asking you to focus on my ability to enter into what I have done on your behalf. It's called grace and mercy. You don't deserve it, you never will, and you'll never be perfect enough to think, hmm. I deserve it now. There will always be uh, that tension between my inability to live up to God and God's incredible grace that holds that and says, even if you're messing it up, I know your heart is open to me so we can do something here. But you're never going to be in any doubt who is supporting who and who needs who. That's what's called humility. Humility is about my understanding that without God, there is not much in me that shines too brightly. And that's what the cross was trying to do, and that's what Jesus modeled as every good leader. Modeled by saying, I will show you how it looks. And lay down my life for you, even though it's not fair. The cross is the place where the problem of sin was dealt with, taking the cross as the place of personal encounter with God the Father. If you want to hear God's heartbeat, listen to your heartbeat. Listen to what goes on inside you when you're anywhere close to His presence. The first whisperings of God's Spirit in our lives is through the things that convict us of stuff that keeps us away from Him. God convicts us of sin or rebellion because of his love for us. He's trying to say if you go in that way, you get to destruction. And many of us have testimonies of going to destruction and surviving, but maybe I should listen next time. 
God in His love says, Well, it's coming in. The cross is the place where Jesus was on that cross as a human being, as an individual, and there's only room for one person on the cross for a reason, and that is because He died for each individual. You can't come to Jesus through your parents, or through your husband, or through your wife, or through some other door. There isn't one. You can't get blood transfusion for AIDS. I've got AIDS, and Cheryl has a blood transfusion, I still have AIDS. No matter how humble and loving the act and heroic the act was, ultimately, with due respect, it's a stupid act because it's for nothing. You can't give somebody else a blood transfusion. Jesus went to the cross, he went to the cross for you, and he says, What? As he said to the disciples, he says, Who do you say that I am? about Christ, but without the experience of a vital relationship with him, knowing what to believe has replaced knowing whom to believe. Knowing what to believe has replaced knowing whom to believe. In the pastorate and in academia, I've often found that when faith consists only of ideas, without practical experience of their truthfulness and usefulness, it is easily shattered when it comes up against competing ideas. Biblical faith is very concrete, rooted in the teachings and work of a person, Jesus of Nazareth, and embodied in personal and social relationships. Thus, when one's understanding of Christian faith centers on a collection of elegant, even powerful ideas, at the expense of an experience of God's love, it quickly becomes idolatry. The idea of God replaces a life-transforming relationship with the Lord. Jesus broke through the barrier of religion and said, I want you to be real clear, God is not impressed with yourself. The sacrifices of buildings, he's not impressed. Doesn't need it, he didn't ask for it. In fact, he said to his disciples, real simple, he said, you know what? What you need to do is love God and love one another. And neither, neither of those, but think about it. As we heard from Greg Cook, out of our hearts, our minds are changed and our thinking is changed. If we start with our thinking, our hearts will never be touched. Because our minds protect the fallen, rebellious person. They rationalize how we can stay alive without God. I'm doing increasing amount of counseling, and some of it is with people who are not in churches. And it's amazing how you have to try and say, how do you fix things that are in your spirit and heart without believing in God? And of course, in my humble opinion, you can't, so you get your pain to stand in if there's anything helpful. Because you're just shuffling pieces around. It's not radical enough. And so Jesus says this, or Paul says this in 2 verse 8. 
See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on, on Christ. Verse 16. Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink with regard to a religious festival and human celebration or Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the price. Such a person goes into great detail, but what he has seen in some spiritual mind helps him not divine emotion. It's lost connection with the head. Everywhere he speaks about this relationship with Jesus that is the most profoundly life-changing. And Jesus says, take up the cross daily. I don't know if you say it, I hope you don't, but some people think they're real um, religious or they're really humble if they say, um, well, God's given me this cross today. It's nonsense. He doesn't do that. It's sentimental nonsense for a false martyrdom that's not God. God doesn't give you a cross today. He says, take up the cross daily and follow me. And what he means by that is to take on the attitude of Jesus that pours out his life for other people. Let the cross mark your life by your willingness to be humble, your willingness to lay down your life for others. Serving when it's inconvenient, sacrificing when it costs something. That's what Jesus seemed to say would be the mark of his disciples, where the people would be marked by their extraordinary grace, their extraordinary uh, servanthood, their extraordinary generosity, their extraordinary placing others before themselves. Are we doing that in, in that field? The cross is about the personal encounter with our lives that changes our lives in the way we live for others. We can't do it without His Spirit. And then you have that passage in Colossians 2, verse 13. Just, when you were dead in your sins, in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the written code with its regulations. That was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away in the age of the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public, public spectacle of them, triumphing, triumphing over them by the cross. I remember reading that years ago, and it was thrilling. For some reason, it just clicked. Because he said, When you were dead, and I was thinking of that, and I need to, to remind myself that when you were dead, Think about this. When you were dead, when you were dead, self-effort kind of is useless. When you are dead, track record doesn't matter. When you are dead, good looks doesn't matter. When you are dead, wealth doesn't matter. When you are dead, nothing matters. Dead is dead is dead. You gather around the grave and you might have a few people who will grieve for you. But you are dead. Dead to God is dead. But because of Jesus, 
He said, if dead people can come to the cross, and in my cross they can come to life, and they can enter into the resurrection that I have, that is also called born again. And they will see the world in a totally different way. Take an experiment to see how effective the cross is in your life right now. Is to push Jesus outside of your life right now, and push the cross outside of your life right now, and see what you have there. What difference would it make tomorrow morning? Jesus is no longer in your life, the cross is no longer in your life, it's as if nothing ever happened. What would be the difference in your life? What would be the difference in the time you spend? What would be the difference in your attitude? What would be the difference in the quality of your life? What would be the difference in the relationships? What would be the difference in the way you spend your money? There is no difference in that Jesus died on the cross for you, for nothing. I think every now and again it's helpful for us maybe to get a little jolt. It's not about attacking each other, it's just doing a reality check because we can fall asleep. Because we get so used to these things. And we're talking coming up to Easter and we're going to talk about the resurrection, we're going to have baptisms, it's going to be cool. But we're also talking about, Lord, impact the study. Lord, impact my life. And this is where the impact happens. At the cross. At the resurrection. At the reality that I was dead, but now I'm alive. Because of what Jesus did. Do you think that if you died, and you were dead for a while, and then you rose up again, that people would notice do you think you'd have a testimony? Do you think you'd talk about it? Do you think you'd be saying to people, you know what happened? You'd become a celebrity. So, if we said yes to Jesus in our hearts, why do we need six month courses on how to share your faith? If Jesus is alive in us and has raised us from the dead and is pulsating in our beings because he went to the cross and he rose again and he said, John, you can be part of that. Why do I need to go through courses to tell you that? Or do I need to go through courses to tell you what I haven't experienced and that I want to be identified with? I don't really have it in here. The only reason might not be in here and might have slipped out of here is because of pride or lack of attention. So there's no respect of anyone. And the power of the cross is life. So why do I think in the sky that I'm posing with this retreat this probably another hour? Why do you think why do you think I don't think we should celebrate Lent anymore. I think we should can Lent and put it in the history cover. That's very I think we should can Lent and put it in the history cover. I really do. I think it's a miserable time. I think it's an absolutely ridiculous thing to do. Don't you? Yeah, do right? Say all the time fasting and giving up things. Tell me. Play with me a little bit here. You're awake, you um, Do you hear of the disciples 
going back to Jerusalem for 40 days of fasting and suffering every year to hang around the empty tomb and go to Golgotha and go, oh Jesus died here. I mean, do you hear that? I don't think so. I think they got it. They said, well, Jesus did that. Why would we do it? Jesus went to the cross. He suffered. The good news is he did it. We don't have to do it. So why are we trying to do it? Like we added to it in some way. What I, my little ladies, my suggestion is that the further away you get from the reality of the power of the risen Lord, the more you go back to empty ritual. Because there isn't anything else. I think what the disciples did was say, Jesus is Lord, He is risen, let's spread out across the world and do it. And this man's blind, he stand up and walk. That one is the resurrection. That one is the crucifixion. That's pretty cool. That's Jesus of life. He didn't have time for the religious ritual. He was too busy living in a relationship. They didn't have time to talk about, oh, how simple I am. Paul just said, I'm the greatest of sinners. Now let's get on with it. Why? Because he said, I am free. Why would I go back? Human beings live in the misery of martyrdom much more easily than they do in the power of the resurrection. We love that stuff. It makes us feel sort of something sanctified or something. And Jesus must look and shake his head and go, Oh my God. I did that so they could be here. What am I talking about? I'm talking about the prodigal son. I'm talking about the prodigal son coming home and saying to the father, and he says, forget your speech, I know. There's a ring, there's a coat, but I need to tell you, I know you do, but it doesn't matter. It does matter, but it doesn't matter, but I've already read your the script as you walked up to me, I read your part and embraced you. And the prodigal son is really trying to get his confession out. And the father is really trying to get him into the party. And God's thinking a lot to me about that right now. I like it. He's saying, Will you please encourage my people to come to the party? Will you please encourage my people to eat the banquet? Will you please encourage them to enter into the joy of the Lord? If they want to honor my crucifixion, please enter into the resurrection. Please stop being so religious. Please, please stop being so religious. Please stop praying to me so much. Oh. Please receive from me more. Because all you're doing in my face is repeating yourself incessantly. And I'm not deaf, and I've got a good memory. And my brothers and sisters, Jesus is answering more prayers than we can imagine. Only problem is He's God. And he's answering in ways that we don't possibly like. And he's going to answer that to people that we might have a problem with. And he's going to say, well, that's called humility and refinement. Remember, when you get ticked off with me, I died on the cross and the whips for you, and I didn't like it. So suck it up. 
That's the power of the resurrection. Jesus, thank you that you've come for me. Thank you that nothing can separate me from you. And so we're invited into the doorway of heaven. Colossians 16, and this is the end. He says this very simply. He says, Do you know that anyone judge you by what you eat or drink with regard to the religious festivals and you make celebration on the Sabbath day? What does he say? These are the shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Jesus. You can live in the shadow of the cross, which is suffering, guilt, accusation, self-flagellation, religious behavior, or you can live in the reality of the risen Christ, which is now walk into the freedom and be my disciples, and if necessary, lay down your life. Forty days of celebrating the power of the living God. They would witness more to Him in forty days of salvation and misery when He's done that. Let's be still. I probably ticked you off this morning. I don't apologize for that. I have. But if I, you know, forget about the tick off part. Um, just you come before Jesus with yourself right now. You know, He's forget He'll forgive me for my stuff. And He says to you this morning, just where, where you know, where, where are you with me this morning? How are we doing? Well, maybe I should say it another way. He said, first of all, Jesus comes before you and He says, I love you, and I haven't ever pulled anything away from you. So. I'm not really angry with you. I'm not disappointed in you. I'm just really saying to you, be clear if you can't closer. He's not convicting you. He's not beating you up. He's just saying, I love to be with people I love, and I love you, whether you like it or not, sort of thing. Um, so can you let me come closer? What am I talking to you about? What is he talking to you about? What's he whispering in your heart right now? Maybe this is stuff that you're angry about. I think what we'll do is we'll sing Jesus the Sire um, and we'll go back into a time of, of just waiting on God. But hang in with that, that, that question where Jesus is saying to you, who do you say I am? See, I think what he raised also in pressing, certainly on me, is it's useless just giving sermons. It's useless just doing more and more talking. It's also about meeting him and giving space for us to do that together. So we want you to kind of break the religious tradition of here's a sermon, here's the next hymn, there's a collection, have coffee, go home. That wasn't bad, thank you very much for helping us out. So we're trying to sort of smooth those edges out of it and say, how does it land in our hearts? And God's going to have to do that, obviously, with each of us by His Spirit, but at least we're giving the opportunity to one another. The only thing we're sharing together is the fact that we all need help, we're all on a journey, and we're all in this together. So that's why we're doing it, okay? So Father, I just pray that you will 
you know, continue to speak into our hearts because you love us and you want us to be those who rejoice with you and with one another. And we want to know the authority of the cross in our lives. So Lord, as we worship you as our Messiah, we pray for your spirit to just meet us where we are this morning. And may we be drawn into a better place. There's always a better place. So, you talk to the Lord as we sing, to, sing together to him and we'll sing for you. I need also to say there might be somebody or one or two people who God speaks to, and if you do hear the Lord saying something specifically that you think should be shared, you can come up and tell me. Because we want to practice these things of hearing God's voice.
come to sort of many situations or places where we make reaffirmations. We hear when Jesus spoke about his cross, 500 people, thousands of people left him. When Jesus went to the cross on his way out to the arrested in Gethsemane all the disciples fled. There's something in our hearts that struggles with stuff. But we know the story beyond what the disciples did. We know about the resurrection. But there are moments where God will press in on us and say, who are you going to follow? I'm calling you to step up into another place. I'm calling you to come closer to me. I'm calling you to to come into not the status quo, but to something different. I'm pushing the issue with you this, this morning. I'm pushing the issue with you saying, it's not the same old, same old. And I don't know what it means. I'm only just speaking what I'm sensing, which is God, in a very loving way, just like he said to Peter, who do you say I am? He's saying, will you come further with me? I went all the way for you. Will you come further with me? What's holding you behind? Is there something that's holding you? If there is, all I want you to do is tell me about it. I will give you the strength to change. I will give you the strength to, to live out the yes that you tentatively give me. All I'm asking you to do is consider the yes in another way. So Father, we just bring ourselves before you. And wherever you are touching our hearts, you're speaking into our spirits. Thank you that you don't condemn us. Thank you that you're not trying to squeeze us into something that's pressured and negative for you. You're just saying if, if you're going to go deeper in our hearts and lives, you need our yes. And thank you that you're not even saying yes, please say yes to me and then try and do it in your own strength. As you say yes, you will release your spirit to do the work in us. So we're standing together before the cross today. It's a bloody place. It's a place of sacrifice. It's a place of decision. It's a place that matters. It's a place where darkness and light clash and where light is triumphed. Where we enter in with Jesus. Darkness is victorious where we don't. And it's a place where the heart is exposed. You can't think yourself through the cross. You can't think yourself into victory. It's about Jesus, I need you. I need you because this in my life is not where it could be. I need you because I'm struggling with stuff. Janicee, uh, as we were driving down, said there are one or two in your group that have a real problem with pornography. There are other things that we struggle with that God doesn't condemn us with. He just says, let me lead you out of that. I need you, yes, to do that. The cross is a messy place. The cross is a place where God triumphs over evil. And as we said earlier, it's not about appreciating what Jesus did on the cross. It's about entering into what he has done for us to break the power of sin in our lives.
taking time, quite deliberately, to wait at the foot of the cross to give to Jesus stuff that is getting in the way. If we want no condemnation whatsoever, absolute delight to be just saying, Lord, here it is. Lord, I'm terrified and scared you're going to cramp my style and all that stuff. He doesn't mind. Father, as we go from here, we pray that your Holy Spirit uh, will 
release in us the fullness of your life that we will know that you are at work in our hearts and minds. Change us, Father. Bless you for your love. May your love change us from the inside out. Thank you for what you've already done. And thank you for what you will do.